Well, howdy everyone. This is Steve Bradley coming to you from beautiful Payson, Arizona, and I have for you today Matthew chapter 4, where Satan tempts Jesus and he also begins his ministry. Now, when I say that, I mean Satan himself, not just one of his demons. Because the devil considered Jesus too important to allow someone else to take him on. However, this brings us to the fact that the New Testament has a completely different view of reality than either the U.S. or Europe and much of the New World. In the New Testament, there are essentially two worlds that intersect, the physical world and the spiritual world. We've lost much of our understanding of the spiritual world, so we tend to analyze things based on our experiences and how we're taught about the world we live in. So that Satan tends to be understood as a construct rather than as a person, which is what he is. He's a person. Now, we might call that the rationalistic view of the world because it discounts the spirit world, which is every bit as real as the natural or physical world. We can also be too oversensitive, and this is just a caution to the spirit world, to the extent that we're always looking behind us, afraid of the dark, looking for demons that want to attack us. And I've seen people like this. It's not a happy moment. Now, neither view is healthy. We must understand that Satan is real, but we must also seek contact with God, who rules all and is the ever-present reality in the life of the Christian. So here's how Jesus' temptation went. And I'm reading now from Matthew chapter 4. It tells us Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And that's a purpose clause. It means that the Spirit of God actually pushed Jesus to go there. Now, when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. So apparently there were all kinds of temptations coming at him from every direction the whole time because he, he was, it was so intense that he didn't feel that hunger until later. So when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now he could have done that, but Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it is written that way. So you have to depend on God for your food. And that's what Jesus is saying. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Now, it's actually, he shall give his angels charge over you in all your ways. And this brings up something about Satan. He never tells a direct lie unless he can get away with it. It's always part of the truth. So, he shall give his angels charge over you in all your ways. 
That wasn't Jesus' way. He was supposed to go to the cross, die and rise from the dead so he could get us our salvation. So Jesus didn't refer to this failure to quote the entire verse. He just said to him, it's written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so Jesus, as man, would not try to show off how great he was. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now that's an interesting concept because what Jesus is responding to is something that's said in one of the other gospels, for all that is delivered to me. Yeah, that says it says that after it says, um, all these things I will give you, for they are all delivered to me. So Satan has immense control over the over the world as we know it. Jesus responded this way: Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Now, folks, this is really important because Whenever an idol worshiper worships an idol, they're not worshiping only that piece of rock, that piece of gold, that piece of wood. They're worshiping the demon behind it. And that is how the spiritual world often fools people into false worship. You think it's nothing, but it's not nothing. So the devil left him because he couldn't penetrate his spirit and angels came and ministered to him. And the next portion we have is how Jesus began his Galilean ministry. And this again is very important. Jesus defeats Satan and his anointing is therefore demonstrated and proven. And then in verse 12, it says, now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison by Herod, and it was eventually murdered by him, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this was almost exactly the message of John the Baptist. And it's the message he taught his disciples to teach too. Then we see that four fishermen are called as disciples. It says, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. 
He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee. The disciples are following him all this time, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria to the north. And they brought to him all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics. And he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jordan, uh, I'm sorry, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So I want to comment on all of these things kind of in order. There is a reason for the temptation, which is the first item. And it's very similar to the reason for Jesus' baptism. Jesus, in his baptism, identified with us. He, had done, he identified as a man, not as one who needed repentance, but one who accepted baptism from John's hand to fulfill all righteousness. Here, Jesus is demonstrating that he's not only God, he's also man. The purpose of the temptation is to establish the fact that Jesus is fully man as well as fully God, yet he is without sin. Now, the theological statement for this is that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, united in one body forever. As we shall see later, Jesus' sinlessness is tremendously important, for he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And in order to qualify to do that, he had to be without sin and blameless and pure. So he pays for sins he did not commit through his death and resurrection. That is the teaching of Scripture throughout. So Satan tempted Jesus in the three main areas that provoke men and women to sin. One was physical need, command that these stones become bread. The guy was starving. He could have done it. He did not. He refused to do it because he's waiting for God to help him out of this mess. Pride. Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. Angel will, angels will carry you, so jump from the top of the temple. Show who you really are. You're the Messiah. Coming down from the top of the temple, ready to save the people. And in fact, that was part of the legend that surrounded the Messiah in the extra-biblical Jewish writings. Ambition. Bow down to me, and I will give you. Notice that Satan claims authority over the kings of kingdoms of the earth and, and over all their glory. Notice also here the meaning of the words, the implied meaning that the words carry. Because he is implying that God has delivered him, Satan has, the political world in which we live. And so godly politics are typically an oxymoron. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't vote. Doesn't mean we shouldn't, we shouldn't fight for what's right. 
But even though God has ordained the powers that be, Satan has great control in the world we live in. However, Jesus is really the king, and he will receive his kingdom because he refused Satan's offer and because he has a right to the kingdom uh, over all the world. Now notice how Jesus countered the temptations. He knew and quoted scripture. Now many have, many have said that Jesus quoted scripture, and that's what set him free from the temptations. No. He knew the scriptures, and he quoted them, and he held on to them, but it was Jesus' determination to obey the defeated Satan. You can quote scripture all day to Satan. It's not some incantation that saves you. Besides, he knows all the scriptures. What saves you is your decision to obey God and is usually made ahead of time. Knowing the scriptures gives you the reason, the rationale for obedience. But what makes you overcome temptation is that you decide to obey God. Obedience is the key to much of the Christian life. In fact, there's an old song that goes, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Trust, that is faith, and obedience are two of the major keys to the Christian life. Now, one of the most interesting things about Jesus' ministry is that his early ministry paralleled that of John the Baptist. John said, repent, the king is coming. And then the king comes and he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was John's message in part. We also find from elsewhere that Jesus' disciples baptized as John did, and they preached the same message. However, Jesus also expanded on John's teachings, and that we, what we will see coming up in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, as well as many other places in the New Testament. Now, Jesus soon, soon begins to collect disciples for fishermen, as it happens, and they follow him. And these four all knew him from John the Baptist's ministry. In John 1, we find where they met him right after his baptism and possibly after his temptation when he came back to Judea and south of the, right by the Jordan River to meet with him. They believed in Jesus and they then went back to their business until he called them to be his disciples. Now, one difference between John and Jesus is that Jesus never did, or John the Baptist never did, was he did not heal and he did not do any miracles. In Jesus' ministry, healing and similar miracles were very prominent. In fact, one of the words that's often used for this is semeon, which is an attesting miracle, a sign work. And Jesus just, I mean, he got, he got so into healing people. It's as if he couldn't stand the presence of disease. 
and he got so into casting out demons, it's as if, as if he couldn't stand the presence of Satan and his demons. One of my profs in seminary said he thought, and it's probably true, that Jesus wiped out disease in Galilee. There was no more sickness there because they all brought sick people to him and <clears throat> he healed them all. Now, this is so unlike today when we have a healing evangelist, so-called, where we think he's going to heal all the people and he only pretends to heal one. He makes people fall down under what he calls the power of the spirit. But <clears throat> healings, I mean, real healings, don't necessarily occur. If they were to occur and he had the power he claimed, he would be able to go visit the local hospital and simply take everyone out of there by healing them all. So be careful when you hear claims of healing. Verify them. Jesus never failed, and he never fails now. Now, this was a wonderful time. But very soon, the religious leaders began to oppose him because he basically challenged them. And we'll see some of this in the Sermon on the Mount, which is next. They feared Jesus would supplant them, that he would take over. And they were right. If they had let him live, he would have taken over everything they had. Now, of course, there's no record of Jesus failing to heal anyone if he decided to do so. And as I said, this is a marked difference from the so-called healing evangelists. On the other hand, and this is very important to understand, there are great miracles happening today. They're not necessarily something we see because the understanding of the spirit world and of faith has often disappeared from our midst. And we believe more in the work of our own hands than in the works of God. That's not a good thing. There are two ways to go in this, and I want to caution you about both of them. You can either say, oh, a healing has occurred. That's wonderful, without actually verifying that it happened. Or you can say, I don't believe any of it. I think these people are liars without seeing if it's true. The Bible teaches that we should test everything and hold on to what is good. That's the proper way. God can do anything he wants, anytime he wants, and any way he wants. And miracles, frankly, folks, are nothing to the God who created the universe with a few words. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Think about that for a second. We don't even know what light is. We know it's particles and a wave, or particles or a wave, depending on the state you see it in. But we just don't know much about any of those amazing things that God made. We can look at dirt, and we can see it. We can touch it. We can feel it. But what is it? What's well, a combination of minerals? Yeah, but what is it? How did it get there? Who put it there? Well, there was the Big Bang and it evolved. No, God made it. 
Miracles, folks, are very much a now thing. But miracles are often stymied because we won't believe what God can do. I have seen miracles. I know they exist. I've not seen as many as I wanted, but that's God's business and not mine. Jesus' ministry was full of good things. We should worship Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory because in Acts chapter 10, Peter says, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil. And then they crucified him. And terrible shock, he rose from the dead. Jesus Christ is the God-man who is worthy of our worship. Let's worship him as the Lord of glory, which he is. Pray for me, folks. I will pray for you. And please subscribe to the podcast. That way you won't miss one. These are occasional, but I'm managing to do some th something like three a week. So I will try to continue that. And as long as I live, you're going to have a podcast to listen to. Remember now, we're going through the New Testament at this point in time, book by book and chapter by chapter. Don't miss out. God loves you. He will bless you. Seek his face and turn to him with all your heart. Amen. And this is Steve Bradley signing off.